0: The following Deep Space Dive episode was recorded this spring. No, we weren't stuck in a wormhole or stasis. We were asked by the Screen Actors Guild to hold off on releasing podcasts like this till after the strike was won. And the strike was indeed victorious. Kapla! If there's one thing Trekkies love, it's worker solidarity. And if there's one thing Trekkies hate, it's shows going on hiatus. So forgive us for the delay. I
1: think you'll find it worth the time loop wait. Welcome to Deep Space Dive, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast at Graphic Policy Radio. Deep Space Nine is the Star Trek with the greatest focus on political concepts like colonialism, feminism, queerness, and post-scarcity economics. Join hosts and guests who aren't just Trekkies, but activists, academics, artists, therapists, and more as we do a deep dive into the text and subtext where few Star Trek podcasts have gone before. We'll be
0: discussing Deep Space Nine's themes and characters, not doing recaps. Also, this is full of spoilers. My name's Ilana Levin. I am the host of Graphic Policy Radio and co-host of Deep Space Dive. I've worked at the intersection of comics, nerd culture, and social change for a very, very long time. My biggest Star Trek cred is I got to give a speech on fan activism at a rally organized by Chase Masterson, a.k.a.
1: Lita. And joining me is... I'm Sarah Daniel Rasher, and when I'm not getting paid to use math to save the world, I write about film and figure skating. I was the founding captain of my high school Star Trek club, and my greatest Star Trek cred is that I once got Nicole DeBoer to kiss me at a convention. You know,
0: we haven't talked much about Ezri, and I know that Ezri is going to come up a little bit in today's episode. I'm excited to... Although this is not like the Esri episode, per se.
1: no. But yeah, the problem is that she only shows up in one seventh of the show. So she's obviously not going to get as much time as a lot of the other regulars. But she matters this week because this week, it's just the two of us chatting and riffing. And one of the many things that Alana and I have in common is that we are both non-binary. And one of the things that we've learned in our travels is that a lot of trans and non-binary and gender non-conforming people of every generation, including a lot of young people who are discovering the show on streaming, really it resonates with them as gender diverse people. So we wanted to just spend a whole episode riffing on how Deep Space Nine has affected and inspired us as non-binary people, what we saw in it as teenagers figuring out our identities and what we see in it now as adults sort of reflecting back. And so there's going to be a lot of Dax, but as we've noted, and as the internet has noted, there are actually three non-binary main characters, if you count both Daxes, as well as Odo, who was clearly not born with humanoid body parts of any kind, but clearly identifies as male. And we're sort of using those as our primary characters to talk about, but there's also some one-off characters that are interesting and notable too. So we'll bring those up as well.
0: Yeah. It's interesting to me also just because in one of the things that Sarah and I connected around when we met in college was Deep Space Nine and... In our conversations more recently about the show and binary identity, I've really realized how much my reading of certain aspects of the show has changed as I've heard from people with really different experiences or priorities even when thinking about identity than mine. Like you definitely were one of the people who really got me to think about and appreciate Odo in a different way that I hadn't, you know, before
1: Yeah, and Odo was a character that when I was really, I had a sense of not conforming in some way to my assigned gender at birth, but I didn't really know what that meant. Odo was the character I actually latched onto first, even more than Dax in a way, just because this idea of being able to change your shape and your body to conform to who you saw yourself in at the moment, and as somebody who still, I see myself as very gender fluid, that's still kind of the dream. And Odo is a tough character in a lot of ways. He represents a kind of law and order quasi-fascism that I'm not crazy about. But when he's depicted more with his relationship with his body and his identity as a changeling, that's where it gets to the gender stuff. And I think that's why... A lot of fans can still kind of relate to him and attach themselves to him, even though the politics of Odo are kind of a problem in other ways.
0: What's so fascinating to me is, like, he Odo, and because of the context in which he was raised, like, of all the possible identities that he could sort of present as he's, I'm going to be a kind of a standard issue pejoran man. I don't think he saw or had access to a lot of other opportunities or ways of being per se. And so it's interesting that he lands on the one that is most within reach of what he can see from his Petri dish, but that doesn't mean that he feels necessarily as free or happy in that once he begins to realize that there's Other ways to be.
1: Yeah. Well, he really, what's telling to me is that he had two choices that were sort of in his experience. He could be Bajoran or Cardassian. And he basically chose to pattern himself after his dad, after the one researcher that sort of treated him with some semblance of affection or recognition of his personhood. There's a lot of times, especially as the show goes on, where Odo will say, I look like this because this is what people expect of me, or I look like this because this is who people recognize. Yeah. And also expresses his frustration with, I can't do this perfectly. This is something that I think really resonates with with trans and non-binary experiences. I cannot get the ears right. His feeling that he will never pass to a certain extent.
0: That's so good. And yeah, really apt. It kind of makes the fact that they decided to have all the changelings look like him. I guess you could say, well, they decided to shape themselves to look like him because they were doing it in response and reaction to him. But I also just think it was a really normative choice of the show to do that.
1: Well, it's one of those like acceptable break from reality. We understand that TV, first of all, has to do a visual shorthand. We all know right away when somebody's a changeling sometimes you know when they're not in disguise they're not, yeah this is a syndicated show from the 90s with a ceiling to its makeup budget so <laughs> they've got yeah. a mold already for that kind of alien mask so rather than create a new one You know, go with it.
0: My no prize, the explanation then of why they all look like Odo is they saw him and were like, I guess we'll make ourselves look like him to make him feel comfortable.
1: And then it kind of stuck. And I think that's actually explicitly stated on the show. Mm -hmm. Having just rewatched the search, they basically say we're looking like this so that you feel comfortable.
0: Yeah, I never really had a strong identification with Odo. And I've been sort of wrestling with why I didn't sort of see him or read him that way or connect with him and I just truly think that I am just so shallow that I could not get over the really ugly clothing and that's the (laughs) sum of it I was like if they only weren't wearing these
1: dresses that look like the least flattering color in the world when they walk around the spaceship and I think also just on a basic level my personality is a little closer to Odo's than yours is so I'm I'm a little more of a everybody just do what you're supposed to do kind of grump sometimes and, you know, I was at 15, uh, even more then than I am now. I feel like I had a lot more to latch onto there. But, you know, looking back at the embarrassing fan fiction of my childhood, there was definitely a lot there of wanting to expand Odo's sort of visual repertoire mm. beyond what the show was showing. I was really attached to the parts of Odo that... Related to my gender and related to my sense of being an alien in a crowd that sometimes passes, but did not relate to a lot of the control freaky misanthropy all the time. So sure, if you're a shapeshifter or not, why not, you know, make yourself a cooler shirt? I truly think if they had showed up
0: looking like Ziggy Stardust,
1: things would have been different
0: for me as a young person. You know, dreams for the reboot. I know that there's people who I've spoken with who, for them, like they very much read odo as a trans man and that's a totally legit take but i wanted to sort of explain a little further why we see odo as non-binary even though again like that's a totally acceptable totally reasonable read of him to see him that way
1: i do on a certain level see him at the very least trans masculine sure he very clearly wants to be read as masculine more than as feminine he uses he, him pronouns within the sort of heterosexist constraints of Deep Space Nine. His romantic relationships are with women. I think that like on a certain level, I do read him as trans mess, but at the same time, that physical fluidity, I think even if we don't read his gender identity necessarily as center of the spectrum, non-binary, that fluidity does speak to us as non-binary people. Well, here's the thing that really shifted
0: how I was thinking about it on this rewatch. Watching the episodes where he first is encountering the other changelings, and they're encouraging him to do things like take different shapes with his body. And it isn't just impersonate this condor, which like go and make yourself shaped like a condor and fly is, of course you would do that. Of course you want to fly. Like this is straightforward. Anybody wants to do that. But that they're also like, now you might want to make your shape Your body shape look like this weird abstract sculpture for some reason. And at first, he has this resistance to fucking around with that even. And then later on, you see he like gives himself a jungle gym to make weird body shapes with in his room. And I remember being a a younger person and feeling really uncomfortable about that. There was the sensuality that I was like, I don't want to think about him in that way. And now as an older person. I'm like, like this is the to me like that's the piece where his gen he maybe felt very uncomfortable with trying to present in any way, but trying to pass as a Bajoran man. And then he feels uncomfortable with them encouraging him to be more expansive. And it, but once he does tr- consider the opportunity to be more expansive, he does try it on for size and has some times where he's, like, yeah,
1: today I am going to be at Alexander Calder Mobile for a couple right. hours. But at the same time, and again, this is you know production constraints to some extent, and the fact that you want to use René as much as possible But one of the things that comes out of that is he's not frequently sitting around being these inanimate objects, like his favorite thing to be is a bird. Right, right. Like whenever he's not humanoid or goo, like he, we frequently see him turn into a bird to the point where it becomes like a thing that's explicitly acknowledged. I love flying around. I love being a bird. And then there is, I can't remember which episode it is but there's one where he has a conflict with Quark because he's upstairs from Quark and he's been running around as a rodent. He (laughs) likes being different animals more than he seems to like those inanimate objects. But he also like, if you gave him any animal that he could be full time and like still do his job and talk to people, he would probably be some kind of Bajoran hawk thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sarah, does it mean that it's non-binary to be a bird?
1: I've heard that it's non-binary to be a frog. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it on by it's non-binary to be a bird. But yeah, that was really like kind of wrestling
0: with some of my discomfort with the character dealing with his identity now has been interesting to me. Like, why did that feel uncomfortable for me when I was
1: younger and so on? Yeah. And I do think that it's one of those like ways of Deep Space Nine production and writing staff subtly getting things in that they might not have been able to say directly is that everybody just automatically accepts that if Odo walks in and say says that he's male that everybody just nobody interrogates that everybody just says Mm -hmm. like You are what you say you are in terms of gender. Well, I mean, behind the scenes, though, it's also
0: because being male is seen as normative. So if you're like a retrograde person working on the show, like the executive producer Berman, you're probably like, yeah, of course he's a man, because that's what the default is for a being. But that doesn't mean that everybody else was processing it that way.
1: Right. And it's at a time where and I think we're still in this time, although we've moved in a more expansive direction where unless there's a reason to have a character be a woman, yeah, like you're going to cast a male actor in that role. Yeah. And like, uh, it's so amazing that I feel like today, if they were casting that role, they would cast, they would open the casting call to any gender mm. in a way yeah. that they probably didn't in the 90s. But at the same time, if they had hired René you know, if you were still alive for that role, it would be like, well, yeah, because he's awesome. Yeah, he does so much work. I do think it grew out of it eventually was the implication that Odo is accepted as this gender because that's the gender he presents as and identifies himself as. Yeah. I was also thinking about
0: the whole thing where everybody's, well, the Cardassians are like, do the Cardassian neck trick and how dehumanizing and upsetting that is.
1: Yeah. That sort and I'm of glad we back... never
0: had to... No, go ahead. I'm glad we. Ne- I'm glad we never had to see that.
1: Yeah, it's one of the great noodle incidents of the show, and it's one that I'm very happy about. But it does speak too to my thing that I say over and over: Odo resists being identified as Bajoran, but Odo is Bajoran, and one of the mm. ways he's Bajoran is he doesn't want to impersonate a Cardassian, and that's something that clearly disgusts him. Yeah, totally.
0: Thoughts about the other changeling that gets credited in the scripts as the female changeling, which is also okay. But any thoughts about that character?
1: Well, the Discord I'm on, that's pretty much all, it's mostly trans, and non-binary Trek fans. We all refer to her as Brenda. But yeah, it's and it's interesting. And again, like I think that a lot of it just came from they hired this fabulous actress to play that role. But there's that fascinating sort of opposition there. Where it's, I always got the impression that that sort of spokesperson changeling took a look at Odo, took a look at Kira, took a look at his relationship with Kira. uh, And is yeah, especially if the third thing we're going to do is have changeling sex, let's present as feminine. That makes so much sense. That makes so much sense. Although, in fact, like I retract my earlier statement that all of his romantic relationships are with women. There's the one episode where he meets the others. One of the others that had been like a baby changeling cast out into the universe, and oh yeah, they do some they do some fun changeling sex. So, and that character is male presenting. So
0: oh that's wow yeah
1: oh that's interesting, cool,
0: very cool. I'd oh. forgotten about that entirely.
1: Yeah, that was like a very much a, oh yeah, never mind moment on my part. What episode was that? Do you remember? I remember the character's name is Laws. Cool. No no problem. I'm just in thinking I might want to go
0: back and watch that.
1: Yeah. It's an interesting episode. It's because what's fascinating about it is it does have that feeling of, and this is something that I wanted to bring up about the sort of great late changelings too, is a lot of Odo's interactions with other changelings is that what happens when you finally meet the other queer people And like that community Mm. is incredibly toxic wherever you're located.
0: That's That's what how it resonates with
1: me now. And having had those experiences where what if you enter into that community and it's like you realize that just like the norms of that community are just breaking you down, but there's nowhere else to go. Right. Right. That's really apt. And
0: in the end, he chooses to stay and try to transform it and... We shall see how other pieces of Star Trek media choose to interpret
1: that. I'm being so vague right now for a reason. Yes, we are. And I am like a couple episodes behind on the thing you're referring to. I'm even farther. Yeah, so whatever. Yes. We'll just say for any listeners that you might
0: want to watch Picard season three if you haven't been watching the show because we get to see Worf and
1: there's like other DS9 stuff. So... It is the first time other than like the existence of Trail 1 and Discovery and Lower Decks does some stuff with Deep Space Nine. But it's the first like major new Trek live action arc that is like taking big pieces of Deep Space Nine lore and running with them. And Mm -hmm. I'm not caught up yet, but what they're doing so far is just delightful and Basically, you know, not to get too deep into this is not a Star Trek Picard podcast, but that feeling of you do get that moment after you've sort of come out to yourself. And I think for both of us, like, even though we'd had sort of whispers of it earlier, like going to Sarah Lawrence College, you know, the commune for weird, smart queer kids, like all of a sudden you've got this like queer community but it's a whole bunch of like socially immature college kids and all kinds of stuff happens that is, I'm so glad there are other people like me, but I don't actually want to see or sleep with most of them because, oh my fucking God. And since that episode aired before I was in college, I don't think that it looped back and hit me until I was much older than it was sort of hitting that memory of like part a big part of queer experiences for a lot of people is it's not just finding your community. It's ruling out the communities that are doing you harm. And like you said, the whole idea of going back and trying to make it better, recognizing that if the community is harming people, it's not just harming you. And Mm. that like, sometimes it's not fair to just walk away.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Still feel like, oh, it's always a struggle to try to find like a queer community that really works or fits an ongoing thing to make it work for you and whatnot. What do you want to go
1: to next? Do we want to start talking about various DAXes? Let's talk about various DAXes. All right. I'm actually going to kind of go backwards and start us with Esri because one of the things that inspired this podcast was having some conversations about Jadzia and about Esri with our friend group that is not toxic and this awesome but is but does have a lot of cis straight people in it and having some of the cis straight people say in a way that was respectful that it was harder for them to read gender diversity into Esri because her presentation is in a lot of ways more gender normative than Jadzia's is
0: yeah we were like okay let's talk about why that's not great. <laughs> yeah. I'm like I'm sure you do
1: feel that way. It's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Because it's not just her and it's not just them. That's yeah. a widespread problem for a lot of gender queer and gender diverse people who present as a binary gender in a or way. Or are perceived as such despite the
0: efforts to the contrary.
1: Or like... Or they don't want to make an effort to the contrary. Like they're sure. happy with how they look in their everyday life. And it's other people's problem if they're misreading them. Like it's that whole like non binary mm-hmm. people don't owe you androgyny. O- you androgyny. Yeah.
0: I love that meme. But I also think one of the congruent issues is people are also really bad at reading androgyny, even when people are making an effort towards it in certain ways.
1: Like yes. And you and I like, have both had that problem, talked <laughs> yeah. about
0: that problem. But it's just, it's also that you are bad at reading signs, general public. Here's various signs, waving them around. It's like, how could that be possible if your body is shaped this way? It's, well, fuck you, actually. So yeah. So yeah, I think that's part of the reason why we both had such a strong reaction to that. And it's funny because, you know, anytime you're reading anything with Esri, you always have to look through the lens of... You know, Ezri was in so much less of the show. We all know why T- Terry Farrell was pushed out, and it's fucked up. It's not as it's not the it's not Nicole De fault. And just sort of trying to separate your feelings of frustration and loss at not having Dax from you know the opportunity to have Ezri and sort of regard Ezri on on their own terms is like it's important. And you know, it took me a while to get to that too.
1: Yeah. And I think you know, if anything, Nicole de even more than Terry Farrell, went into her role knowing that this is a character who is sort of transcends the gender binary. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of a nice meta, uh, a nice analogy and metaphor there that I've seen people pick up on too. Of that moment where you like look in the mirror and you go oh, wait, that non-binary person is me. And it's regardless of my history and regardless of my appearance, that's who I am. And just adding on from like the appearance standpoint, she's adorable. She's got a pixie cut. Most of the time she's in uniform. There's other than the heavy 90s makeup, there's definitely like a baby bu- a baby butch fight going on there. So, And we all know that when she gets the dress
0: herself in parallel universes, she's Joan Jett so yeah which of course i have to say is her best look i really enjoy mirror or
1: mirror world esri and even in the episode where you see Ezri's family which has its own problems i like it anyway but that her mother is like this high femme mafia boss type who is mm. clearly just bewildered and a little annoyed that her daughter has not turned out to have a similar gender presentation. Yeah. Like it's pretty, like you could pretty clearly infer that like her mom was the type who wanted to put her in pretty little dresses and Esri was not that kid. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But at the same time, I know plenty of non-binary people who, you know, and sometimes they have to, sometimes it's, it's what they have to do to keep a job or not be estranged from their family or whatever that in all or certain contexts don't present in a way that completely affirms their gender at all times yeah
0: and i think also i love that esri is the therapist because lord knows they need it and i found the episode where she's trying to help garrick to be really astute Like at first you think she's doing a terrible job, but then you realize it's actually part of a larger plan. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that's just not to say she's the most experienced therapist at her job, but there's more going on there than like the episode takes you through a journey where she's doing stuff that seems wildly ineffective at first, but then you kind of realize it's actually part of a strategy that's rooted in empathy trying to connect to Garrick, not from the position of an authority figure, because that would be so toxic for him. Like, I think that Garrick probably couldn't have gotten good therapy from someone who wasn't this, like, tiny, younger, gender-complex person. I think if it had been, like, a man who was older than him, for example, like, Garrick could not have handled it. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it's one of the better representations of mental health care that's on Star Trek, when a lot of Mm -hmm. it is just really, you know reflective of its time and but I do think that like at the you know at the sort of the turn of the millennium when that aired like which is to mental health care were changing actually and I think it reflects that but yeah Yeah. and it's also to me kind of a reflection of how often even if somebody has a very different kind of minority experience from you like the fact that we read them both as queer and clearly both actors are reading themselves as such, like it does say something about would he have been able to receive therapy from a cis straight person as effectively either?
0: Yeah, exactly. I don't think he would have. So,
1: or from it's... a fellow Cardassian, oh, or God. From, like, yeah, yeah, all these things, yeah, or from a human or Bajoran. Whereas one of the things that connects them is that they're both sort of I'm the only person like me on this space station, sort of outliers. And new,
0: you know? Yeah,
1: so. yeah. We like Esri. It's, I mean, I honestly, I wish that we'd just gotten more time with her so they hadn't had to hurry up and, you know, bring her in at the last minute.
0: What do you think of the... I'll bring this up now in case I don't know for. I do. Tell me if you want to talk about this or not, because maybe this is something different. But what do you think about the way it sort of sets up her relationship
1: with Bashir? I consider, so initially, when I feel like until the last few episodes, when they decided to hurry up and make it a romantic relationship, like, I thought it was actually handled pretty well, where Mm -hmm. they sort of look at each other and go, like, the Trill cultural rules are in place for a reason, and we probably do need to be backing off of each other until we understand what our relationship is now. They are extremely well behaved and acting like mature adults in a way that characters on television often don't in a way that's really refreshing. And the fact that Worf is much less able to handle his emotions like an adult, even than Quark can revealing about all of these characters who were in love with Judd Zia on some level. And one of the reasons I find the sort of end game julian and esri so frustrating and i mean there's a list of reasons is <laughs> that they were on such a good path to having them behave like grown-ups yeah yeah and then Absolutely. instead of exploring that dynamic they just sort of got thrown into bed and it didn't make sense
0: well you know they're both two single young people of what the people in charge of the show are perceiving to be opposite genders, so clearly that means they have to have a relationship of a sexual nature with each other. How else could a show end? Clearly,
1: no other options, none at all. And it's like I one of the things that I don't object to it on, and never want to object to it purely on, is like there are lots of queer people who are in different that gender, gender normative. Yes. So that's not the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I always enjoyed Worf and Jadzia, which was a straight passing relationship. Right. Like, that was a very different dynamic. Well, I think it says something. You know, again,
0: I did not watch that much TNG. But I, you know, I think it says something that like one of the more beloved and effective nominally or perceived by the heterosexuals relationships in Star Trek is Tootsia and Worf and that's because they couldn't handle it like a traditional generic woman and man kind of a
1: relationship on the show. So that's why it's more affecting and good and we like it. Yeah and I think you know just looking at who gets into Star Trek and especially in the 90s a lot of people got into sci-fi because they didn't really feel you know traditional social roles including gender but going far beyond that as well like they didn't feel like those suited them and they didn't feel like they could conform to them. So watching this sort of, I mean, there's, a, I can't speak to it personally, but there's a lot of autistic people who Wharf resonates with. Hmm. Half the main cast of Deep Space Nine resonates with autistic fans. So <laughs> clearly something was going right there. But, but yeah, like they're just these two people who are non-normative in all kinds of ways. And if you're, you know, glued to Deep Space Nine, you're probably a non-normative person, especially in the 90s. So just seeing like these two weirdos find each other. And I think that happens again with like Ram and Lita. That's really comforting and appealing to maybe not the kind of people that some people on production thought they were appealing to, but who was actually watching this show and getting into this show. That's right. Well, I think we might want to, because I know we're going
0: to be bringing on the special guests to sort of talk about Jadzia through a trans feminine lens. Maybe we want to talk about, you know, just more focused on Jadzia going through their different lives and genders back and forth and
1: changing over time. I don't know. Yeah. It's the tough thing with Jadzia is there is so much to say here. And I feel like almost every trans and non-binary person I know who's into Deep Space Nine, first of all, has a very deep affinity with Jadzia. And second of all, like, it's very personalized to their own experience. Mm. Like, we all think we're Jadzia, but we all think we're Jadzia in very different ways. (laughs) So it's almost hard to like, like, I can talk a lot about my own sort of like embrace of that persona, but like, I feel like my journey is really specific to me.
0: Yeah. Folks should definitely take anything we say as being like, you may experience it differently and that's fine. And like, I encourage folks to share with us if you're interested in, but, uh, but yeah.
1: Yeah. One of the things that stands out that to the point where it's become one of the major deep space nine memes is I'm trying to remember which of her Klingon friends it is. Who's like, just really excited to see her that's even become one of the big Deep Space Nine memes is it's a series of stills from the episode Blood Oath, which is the one where Jadzia goes off with all of her, like, Altakocker Klingon friends for, like, their one last old man mission. And And they're all played by their original actors from the original series, and it's a whole thing. But when one of them meets her again for the first time seeing her as Jadzia, he just throws his arms out and goes, Curzon, my old friend. And she goes, it's actually, it's Jadzian now. And he's just so excited and like instantly gets comfortable with her new name and her new pronouns and her new appearance and recognizes that like his friend has changed, but is still his friend. Mm -hmm. And that moment, and I think especially because it is an older person being represented, like that's kind of if anybody asks what like what you want from people who have known you a long time when you transition I feel like that moment is kind of the answer and that's why it's resonated with so many people
0: yeah just the whole exchange of on my old friend it's Zia now Jadzia my old friend and not like digressing to apologize for 50 minutes not explaining why they got it wrong not just okay this is great I'm so happy to see you and I'll do this now it's what people want you know (laughs) so
1: right and I feel like so much of what the experiences is very much that like walking the line between being perceived as you want to be perceived and accepting because Jadzia has that sort of like many lifetimes of wisdom that you're not that you're not always going to get what you want you're like not every moment is going to be that perfect core moment and you see it a lot with Ferengi there's a scene in Rules of Acquisition which we watched for other reasons and we will get into the whole like Quark and Pell situation I think during this episode but where like she's permitted to play Tongo with the other Ferengi largely because nobody wants to piss off Quark enough to tell her no. And Quark says, yes, Quark being an excellent example of like someone who simultaneously accepts Judzia for who she is, but cannot let go of the fact that like he identifies as heterosexual and really is attracted to her, which I'm sure is an experience that both of us on this (laughs) podcast have had to negotiate. Uh, Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's so funny, too, like, I I just, you made me think about this. I love the interchanges between Cisco and Junzia, where he calls her old man. It makes me so happy. And I think it's really cool and interesting how Esri is like, don't call me that. And he's like, okay, like accepting that this different incarnation is going to have a different relationship to gendered language being re- used by them. And you can see it takes a couple of times before Esri develops the confidence to say, you know, I actually don't like being called that. And that it's okay that, you know, Jadzia Dax thought it was charming and Esri Dax doesn't. And like both of these are fine. And it
1: goes back to that sort of general like non-binary person. You are the one who's in charge of which language is okay for you. And it's not even really incumbent on you to explain Mm -hmm. why that language makes sense for you. And, like, my own personal example recently is, like, I have been fussing with my pronouns in Spanish Hmm. for, like, seven years. Yeah, English, I hit the they, them. I'm like, this works for me. We're good here. Spanish is a nightmare. And it's a language that I have to, that I use professionally. Like, it's a language where it matters that people know how to address me. And I got to the point where I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. It's not going to make sense to a lot of people. It's going to be an adjustment for a lot of people. And I'm a little weird about it. What I basically decided was for a while, I was attempting to use gender neutral. And this is if you don't know anything about Spanish, you know, just go take a nap. But, <laughs> uh, but I w- it's a romance language with heavily gendered word endings. And a number of non-binary first language Spanish speakers have figured out a system of gender-neutral word endings, and I was trying to use those, but it's my second language. It sounded like I was just making mistakes. Nobody I talked to could get the hang of it. And it was on a level way beyond, like, people complaining that they, them is hard. This was genuinely hard for everyone, and including me, and I'm the deciding vote. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to use masculine endings and masculine pronouns all the time, and everybody's going to feel weird about it, but that weirdness is kind of the point. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like drawing your attention to the fact that it's not the default, but at the same time, it's like something that's grammatically part of your everyday language in a way that you yeah. don't have to remember how to do it. It makes a ton of
0: sense, and
1: yeah, yeah it's and it feels super weird for me to do it whenever I refer to myself with ma- with like masculine pronouns and endings. But at the same time, I'm like, that's what you chose, and I feel like. The differences between Esri and Jadzia kind of illustrate that you can't just assume that every non-binary person is they, them. And even though that works for me, and I think it's great, and sometimes people will give me a neo-pronoun and I'm, okay, I'm really going to have to conscientiously remember this. And with a tinge of, that's not what I would do, but you are not me, that, that it really does go back to it's very personal to the person deciding how they're going to be addressed.
0: And also language has limits. One of the things that I've really struggled with is I don't love the term non-binary. I don't love the they, them, but it's closer to it feels right to me than other options. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's, well, they're not using she, her, so that's good. And we'll just deal with this because it says something that is useful in how it communicates it, even if I'm not, I love this terminology. (laughs) And I'm happy for people who do. I'm jealous, actually. I would love to have terminology that I love, you know, but there's languages we presented as limits and it could take a while to experiment and figure it out. And, you know. And just
1: being able to refer to myself as non-binary and having not everybody, but a lot of people understand what I mean by that. That's a big step up from 20 years ago. I'll take it. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll take it.
0: I mean, I, you know, I think for most people, we're always we're talking about, well, what's close enough, you know? Yeah. Everybody is different. And so everything is an approximation.
1: Right. And I do. I admire people who are like, I am choosing this specific set of unusual pronouns because I want something that is exactly me rather than something that is an approximation of me. That's not how... I'm going to operate mostly because I'm very like path of least accept least resistance that's yeah. acceptable to me. But yeah. people who aren't like that, I definitely see where you're coming from. That's admirable to me.
0: So I know that we could talk about Dax for five thousand hours, but we have a really exciting guest joining us. It's Judzia herself, or rather Jazia Axelrod, the writer and artist. She'll be joining us on the podcast soon, and I think we're going to continue talking about Dax a lot more in that episode. So I think we're going to pivot now to talk to somebody who folks might not have thought about in a while,
1: and that's a special friend of Quark's, Pell. So Pell appears in one episode, although she looms large in the hearts of many queer viewers. This is the one, (laughs) Rules of Acquisition, where Quark has a new assistant who is really financially savvy and really likes Quark, like maybe a little more than Quark is comfortable with. And we learn Vel is in fact a Ferengi woman who is passing as male because Ferengi women are not allowed to wear clothing or leave the house, let alone engage in business. And I love this episode. It's really, both because it's really fun but Mm -hmm. also just because it's really sensitive to its subject matter. And and I feel like it's really directly talking about trans issues. Like it's not pretending to be anything else. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the credit really does go to the actors. Uh, And one of the big parts of it is Armin Shimmerman's performance in this as someone who very easily could have you know, had his character react with disgust, but that's not how it goes.
0: I love that, you know, when he thinks Pell is a man and Pell goes to kiss him and he's not interested, it's not, it doesn't come off as a gay panic at all. It comes off purely as, oh, I, is this appropriate? I feel like you're my employee. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's even though we know he sexually harasses people, but it doesn't have that like gay panic kind of response from Quark. It feels
1: very different from that. It's even, you know, and having watched this episode the bajillion times that I have, what if you watch him, like, before Quark realizes that Pell is a woman, there is indications that the attraction is already mutual. Yeah. And he's yeah. kind of processing it as like a, I don't usually feel this way about men, but it's happening and I'm going to deal with it like I would with any attraction to somebody especially somebody that for you know business reasons basically I don't want to pursue romantically or sexually but like yeah you're right like his objection has nothing to do with Pell's gender and everything to do with I really need you to be my business associate right now
0: yeah and it's so appreciated because look at the year it came out it would have been so easy for this to have had gay panic or trans panic written all over it And it just doesn't.
1: It just doesn't. Like, Quark, look at you being an ally. Who would have thought? In addition to that, like, finding out that she is a woman doesn't really change his stance, that this is not a romance that I am enthusiastic about pursuing, because I'd really rather be your business partner. I
0: know some people, yeah. No, go ahead. I know some people listening to this are going to be like, but Pell is just like a Shakespeare thing. This is a woman dressed as a man in order to, you know, seek a particular goal. And surely in a liberated society, Pell would have just shown up as a woman to do this or that. And I don't, that's really reductive.
1: <laughs> yeah, because her, it's articulated in the episode. Quark says to her, basically, you would be safe among non-Ferengi on Deep Space Nine. But the second a Ferengi came here, you would instantly be unsafe. And and he's I don't like that that's true any more than you do. But you need to go somewhere where you can continue to pass because not passing is not a safe option anywhere right now for you.
0: What do you think of people's argument that oh, well, pal, it's just a, this is a feminist story. This is about a woman who can't do what she wants to do as a woman and therefore has to dress and drag as a man. And that's their takeaway from it.
1: Well, my contrast is her and Ishka, you know, Quark and Rob's mother, who when Ishka gets to wear clothes, she wears a pretty dress and jewelry. She's and also not disguising herself, though. The actress's name is, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right, but her name is Elaine Udi. And one of the things that she conveys really beautifully when in the scene where she's taking off her fake ears is that while they are uncomfortable and she is relieved, there's always this sense that like what she's wearing and how she's presenting herself, she likes how she looks and how Mm -hmm. she's presenting herself. Yeah. When she's presenting as male and really it maps historically, not just to Shakespeare and like, this is work that I've done in my previous academic life that a lot of the people that we find in the historical record who were presenting not as their assigned gender at birth, you know, hundreds of years ago, generally they liked how they were presenting themselves. They liked that gender identity and that choice was tied to their desire to dress and present themselves that way that and even if you look at shakespeare it's not characters like viola or rosalind are like miserable to be dressed as men they're really having fun with it and even if it is just drag to them like drag is itself it queer expression mm-hmm. to present it as she's forced to dress this way and it's contrary to her nature or her gender identity. Clearly there's an element of play and joy in how she's dressed and how she's presenting herself. And she genuinely likes being in male spaces. Yeah. And like even, and this is really pointed out later on with Ishka, like even dressing in, a style that other species would consider feminine is masculine within a Ferengi framework because Mm. wearing any clothing is masculine to a Ferengi. Wow, yeah, no, that's real. That's a good point. So having her do a big final scene of Twelfth Night reveal where she comes out in a dress, like to us as human viewers, like that would be feminine. But to other Ferengi, that would just be, like, dressing up as an alien, basically. And and Pell keeps
0: wearing her, like, uniform, her Her
1: server outfit.
0: Yeah. Her suit, like, her her little green suit. Like, when she has the opportunity, she's, I don't feel like chest binding, but she's like, I want to wear this outfit. And you could be like, well, that's the outfit she came with. Yeah, but there's fucking stores. Like, Garrick's right there. Pell didn't want to wear that. Pell wouldn't wear that.
1: Garrick is right over there. You know? Yeah. It has been established that Pell has some cash to spend. Garrick would be happy to design a gender-affirming outfit of Pell's choice. Yeah, so like you've got to come to the conclusion that presenting that way is on some level gender-affirming. And it's also the corollary of if that's the only avenue available to Ferengi women, why is it so rare? Most Ferengi women are probably not willing to do that. frankly most of them probably don't have the resources either but it's not like a common choice I think it would be a hard thing to keep up for most people
0: and there's also just vibes you know (laughs) like (laughs) trust us guys we it's there
1: yeah and I think again like the vibes come from the way the actors are playing the characters both both Helene Udi in that role and Armin Shimmerman the way he plays off of her in a way that sort of affirms those choices. And especially even though it's a fairly early episode in the series, like we've already established that one of Quark's main conflict is that he outwardly upholds all of these very conservative and repressive Ferengi cultural norms, but at the same time, like every woman he's attracted to is like, who would be, you know, absolutely ostracized and not at all tolerated in Ferengi culture.
0: Yeah, Quark is just not the conformist that he purports himself to be. Like, he's not. And it's one of the interesting things about him, you know? Yeah.
1: And, like, he also, like, and he'll make jokes about it, but the fact is the way Ferengi marriage works is basically you buy a contract And he is unwilling to buy a woman to be his wife.
0: Yeah. I'm looking, there's so many potential Quark episodes to be done, but I think there definitely is one around like Quark. We need to do a Quark episode. like I know, but there are really a lot of potentials to talk about Quark. And Pell really brings some of those to the front.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I remember seeing the Pell episode when it aired and having that really resonate with me as somebody who is really trying to find my gender space as I absolutely read it as I don't know what this person is but this person is not really a woman either
0: yeah I really hope hell got to go on having awesome adventures and find the right man or woman I don't know
1: if she's shown I haven't seen her show up in like the novelizations or the comics or anything and I've been looking maybe this is you know it's time for, for Pell to show up somewhere because Oh yeah. Uh, she she's yeah, I, such an interesting character.
0: Well, it feels like historically DS9 characters have been the ones that they've been least likely to try to weave into other stuff that's you know.
1: Yeah. I want a whole like, you know, Trek series about the Ferengi Revolution. So that's Oh wow. I, totally. Like, yeah, the like Ferengi feminist revolution.
0: I really just love learning about these different cultures too though. Like for me, a big part of the appeal of season one of Picard is that like I'm obsessed with Romulans now. I never thought about them that much other than the fact that there's a lot of mean, hot Romulan women in DS9 when they show up. But like, I'm now fascinated with the Romulans more broadly. And I think that there's almost a limitless amount of interesting cultural work you can do with these fictional societies.
1: And I feel like that's always been one of Star Trek's big strengths is that the longer it goes on the more you get a sense of the like cultural anthropology side of sci-fi where there is this real desire to say here's a bunch of aliens that wear this particular hat and what are the real ramifications of that like the like what would you what kind of society would emerge if it's this kind of being mm-hmm. and it gets more and more fascinating. And one of the things that I love about all Trek, and because I don't think it's just deep space nine that does it well is really thinking about what, you know, what are the ramifications of having a species with this premise?
0: Yeah. A lot of these things are like, ultimately, I don't know how that functions as a society, (laughs) but
1: yeah, it's, I'm not quite sure how like, The Klingon culture leads to space travel, although I think like beta canon is basically that they conquered people and stole it.
0: Yeah, and we know they have Klingon lawyers. I'm really excited to talk about our completely unfrozen Klingon lawyer in (laughs) an episode soon.
1: We love him so we do. But we, it's like Klingon culture is the most developed, and it's like you said, we have Klingon lawyers and we're laughing. We also have Klingon scientists on TNG, Mm -hmm. especially. We have a Klingon engineer as a main character on, on Voyager. Like she yeah. wasn't quote unquote raised Klingon, but she's Klingon. We have a Klingon musician and restaurateur on Deep Space Nine. Like, He's so wonderful. Yeah. Speaking of characters that barely exist that everybody's in love with. I, yeah. Like we do get glimpses of just as not all humans join Starfleet. And most humans would not want to. You get glimpses of this like broader Klingon culture. And boy, are we off topic now and I don't care. This is true. We get get glimpses of this broader Klingon culture where the Klingons that we see are the warrior types because they're the ones that go out into space. But there's all these other types of Klingons who are probably just living their lives. Well, for more on, yeah. I'm even thinking of, as long as we're on, like, Quark's love interests, like, Mm -hmm. Grilka is really more of a businesswoman. Yeah,
0: Grilka is a business warrior woman.
1: Yeah. And, like, she'll still do all the, you know, botleth and blood rhyme rituals, but in the end, she just wants to, you know, run a business. And in Quark's culture, in
0: Quark's culture, she would be entirely read as a man. Like, we don't see her that way. She doesn't see her that way. Her culture doesn't see her that way. But in Quark's culture, she's a man. Oh, it's yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, and how, you know? <laughs> I love Grilka. She's fabulous. Yeah, Quark just has diverse tastes in who he's attracted to, despite his protests. <laughs> he has
1: diverse tastes, but he also has a type. Like... He likes women who would, as you say, would be considered men on Verenginar. So, we just want to, as we're sort of closing out this episode, we want to note that, like, we've focused on characters that really frequently get read as non binary and that non binary viewers like us resonate with very frequently. But, like, basically every main character, we're going to put it in the show notes. There's a recent article arguing for a, for a non binary reading of. Cisco, which like yeah, like my mind is
0: blown. I'm looking forward to reading it. Yeah. But yeah.
1: yeah, and to me, like that's the beauty of deep space nine. You get a lot of like gender queer readings of Kira. You get a lot of gender queer readings of oh, there's like a dedicated fan base of people who if Bashir is a trans man, certainly people reading gender queer dynamics into Wom and Lita and yeah so so far I have not seen the argument for a trans Miles O'Brien but I want to read it. We're sure it exists. The internet is powerful and so are queer
0: readers and fans of Star Trek.
1: Yeah but my point is really because Deep Space Nine has such a queer following and we as Trek fans have such a desire to see track as a mirror for ourselves in whatever way we can, that like really any character that you want to read with a non binary lens, you're going to have success in doing so.
0: Celebrate your headcanon. We are not here to tell you that you're wrong. You may listener, you may even think that the changeling p- dress is like arch fashion. Like I can't tell you otherwise. So
1: yeah, we support our like, anti-fashion comfort came right out of the replicator friends and listeners so our (laughs) aversion to beige
0: is our own gender problem. exactly i think that's it for us today
1: yeah so alana where can people find you on the internet for more things
0: well i'm trying to spend less time on twitter although i am still technically there at elana underscore brooklyn that's elana underscore brooklyn I am spending a lot more time now on the Blue Sky app where my handle is L-E-V-I-N, just my last name, period. And Sarah Rasher is actually there as well. And they're there under their last name too, Rasher. So they're at R-A-S-H-E-R. I'm curious if there are a lot of other uh,
1: DS9 and Trek fans. I'd love to keep following you and engaging with you guys on Blue Sky. My web presence where I'm storing my writing has moved and sort of shifted formats. So thefinersports.com still exists on the internet if you want to read my old stuff. But as of this new year, I have started writing a newsletter, which you can subscribe to via email. And I am working on a less unwieldy URL for it. But for now, it's the Rasher report on ghosts. So it's V dash rasher dash report dot ghost ghost dot io. Please subscribe. You can subscribe for free and get everything. And it's really like I wanted to move away from branding myself as a sports writer. And as a result, I've ended up like writing about ice skating a lot, but also <laughs> writing all kinds of other things about film and TV and music and culture and binary stuff too. And lots of non-binary stuff and the occasional stuff about being Jewish and and it always ends with a cat photo. So yeah, so read me and follow me and subscribe. And, hopefully, and I will also, of course, sort of cross-reference between these two. So that seems like that's it for us for this time. Does Odo have anything to say to us yeah. today? So as Odo sells... Being a bird is non-binary and so is being a frog, but maybe not being a chair. But sitting in the chair poorly is highly bisexual. Oh,
0: yes. That's a whole other, that's a whole other. Oh, thanks guys. Keep it geeky and see you for our next episode of Deep Space Dive or Graphic Policy Radio.